Two things I would like to just mention before getting started. Uh, one is for you to realize how precious this is, uh, the scripture, the word of God that we have. It's very unique. We take it so for granted. Uh, most of us have at least a half dozen Bibles in our homes. Um, Voice of the Martyrs shared this this last week. The Chinese Communist Party announced plans to update the Bible to keep pace with the times. The revisions will include adding core socialist values and removing passages that do not reflect communist beliefs. In a textbook for high school students released in September 2020, the authors included a passage from John 8. Let me read how this reads. John 8, 7 through 11. Jesus once said to the angry crowd who was trying to stone a woman who had sinned, He who is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. When his words came to their ears, they stopped moving forward. When everyone went out, Jesus stoned the woman himself and said, I am also a sinner. This is potential in any culture that rebels and hates God. But I just want to urge you and encourage you to be students of the Word of God, to diligently press on. Uh, Some of you uh, would really be blessed to spend time trying to memorize these scriptures and understanding them deeper than you ever have before. I know I, I need that. But changes will be attempted. God's Word will live and stand forever. But we're to be diligent servants or students of the Word so that we can present ourselves Approved to man? No. Approved to God. A worker rightly dividing the word of truth. So, as we study the word of God, I just wanted to impress upon us what a privilege it is to have scripture and be able to study this and hold fast to it. There was a prayer request I didn't mention. There's a friend of of several of us in here and he is a uh, employee or a staff member for ISI, the International Student Ministry, Randall Harms. Uh, His wife passed away uh, yesterday. She's had cancer for quite a long time. And uh, they've tried everything for for months and gone all over the world really for treatment. And she passed away yesterday. So uh, if you would pray for this brother, Randell. And uh, let's just lift him up for a moment here. Father, I lift up Randell and thank you for his love for you and his love for uh, the students that he ministers to so faithfully. And I know he loved Katie. And uh, Father, she is is with you. She loved you. But she is gone from Randolph's side. And we pray, Father, that you would comfort and lift up this brother. That you would encourage him in Christ. And that he would see, see you more clearly through all these difficulties. Bless his children and bless their family. In your name I pray. Amen. Several years ago, our family, our extended family, went out for dinner at the Hometown Buffet. And it's one of those places where you can go back, and you can go back, and you can go back. Uh, and on the particular evening we were there, the wait staff were all dressed up in costumes. And this was more than just a few years ago, uh, because one of my precious daughters was only about a year and a half old. Uh, we went in, and we found a table for the 12 of us, the, the extended family, and And I saw this one waiter in a honeybee costume. And bright, bright yellow and and black details and and stripes. Um, She had uh, big buggy eyes and wings and an antenna. 
And, and to the rest of us, this was, was really cute. So foolishly, I took my precious little daughter up to this human-sized insect. And the moment she saw it, she began to shriek in fear and cry inconsolably. After quite a long time, we were finally able to get our little girl calmed and we sat back down. But any time that bee came near us, she would literally begin to sob. We finally asked the bee to buzz off somewhere else. (laughs) And we had another waiter help us. Now, why was she so terrified? She didn't understand what she was seeing. She didn't know that I could tell the bee to leave or, or we could leave the bee. She didn't have a trust that I had any control there. And she didn't know the bee was actually there to serve us. The size, the colors, the shape, uh, the strangeness of it all were over the top for her little mind and heart. But I couldn't communicate that effectively to her. Jesus makes this point much more effectively than my shallow example In John chapter 16, in verse 1, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whosoever kills you will think he offers God service. And these things they will do to you, because they have not known the Father, nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. He's telling him. Then we move down a little later in verse 32 of chapter 16 of John. Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet, I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Do we get the picture that Jesus is painting on this canvas of His Word this morning? That we just read, that Matt read to us. No, we do not. We don't get it. We get parts of it. We understand some of it to the best that we can. We grasp some of it. But if the phrase in verse 19 this morning means anything, it says, There such as not, has not been seen since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be, then there are portions that we only faintly and, and very inaccurately can imagine what is going on here. Not to feel odd here, it, because even the apostles, immediately after Jesus' world-changing, life-saving death on the cross, And then his resurrection from that grave. It reads in Acts 1. When they had come together. They asked him saying. Lord. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? A lot of unknowns. These words of Jesus to his disciples though. Had purpose. And they still have purpose. Why do I say that? That they still have purpose. Because Hebrews describes the word of God as living and powerful. The purpose to those four disciples gathered around Jesus as He sat on the slope of the Mount of Olives and to us who are the readers of Jesus as He sat, of Jesus' words as they're recorded in Mark's Gospel. The purpose is to assure them and us that no matter the uncertainty, the Holocaust, or the terror that suddenly breaks forth in this life and in the future, Jesus reigns as God. 
And he has complete knowledge and full sovereign control. That is, as he said in John 16, why I have told you these things. All things will work out for his glory. In the consummation, it will be for his glory and for our good as well. So as we look at this this morning, we're focusing on Jesus' message. And we need to remember the context here. We need to remember the time is late in the day on Wednesday. And so stop whatever you're thinking now and come back as we always try to do when we enter here. What has been going on? What is, where is Jesus? What is happening? This is not in a vacuum. This is not a, a distant story. This is part of the life of Christ. And, and let me just say, if, this is, if you're a visitor this morning, uh, we try to work our way through the books of Scripture, going after each section, each portion, con- con- sequentially. And that is why we were here this morning. If you thought, well, man, they're a, some sort of a crazy place that likes to look at the most exciting portions of Scripture, uh, and we have all the answers. No, we are working our way through, and that is why we come to this. Uh, it would be easier to kind of gloss over it or, or go to another portion that we feel more comfortable with. But praise God, His Word is complete. And we want to understand it fully. So that's why we're tackling this morning. It's Wednesday. Two days earlier, Jesus had entered Jerusalem, hailed as the Messiah. He was lauded by thousands, lining the roads, laying their clothing down, shouting praise and glory to Him who comes in the name of the Lord. The following day, Tuesday, he totally dismantled the corruption and deceit of the Temple Bazaar, also known as the Bazaar of Annas, the high priest. Jesus shut that down, and as a result, the beneficiaries of the Bazaar, who were the Sanhedrin and the high priest, have reached the end of their rope. They are obsessed now with killing Jesus and killing him very, very soon. Jesus returned, however, to the temple that next day on Wednesday. And at the temple, he faced an onslaught of verbal and spiritual attacks from the Sanhedrin and its minions, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes. Throughout that day, he constantly pronounced judgment upon the Jewish religious leaders. In his final words at the temple, as he and his disciples left the temple for the very last time, the last time Jesus would ever enter or teach that building. He said, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, we we beg for your Holy Spirit to, to lead us through the word now as we study. Lord, please help me. You know my weaknesses and and uh, they are many. I pray, Father, that, that whatever is said, only what is from you will stick in the hearts and minds of the people and that your word would be what cuts like a two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And as discerner of the thought and intents of the heart, Lord, please use your word to, to come down into our hearts and our minds and reveal to us who you are. There are amazing things that happen here, but they don't matter. What matters is you and who you are and your power, and your control. Teach us about these things. But most of all, Lord, please show us you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's get back up on the slope of Mount, of Mount Olive here. And uh, let's enter in at 
Mark chapter 13, and we'll catch up, beginning with verse 1. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves. For they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand. Or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents, and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So, when you see... The abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, or as Matthew says, in the holy place, the temple. Let the reader understand. Jesus begins to command his people that there will be a sudden departure. You must depart suddenly when you see the hated thing that makes desolate. The hated thing that makes desolate. There's a Swiss theologian by the name of Schlatter in the early 1900s said this about Jesus' message on Mount Olive. He said, The description of the perusa, or perusia, and that's theological talk for Jesus' return. The, des- the description of the perusia consists almost entirely of quotations from Scripture. Jesus did not create his own imagery for the event in which, in the glory of God, he would reveal himself to the world. He grounded the hope of the disciples solely in the prophetic word. In the same way that he strengthened himself for the cross, with the assurance that suffering and the divine will were united in Scripture. I love that insight. It brings us back to Christ and God's word in every part of life. That is how Jesus spoke and lived. And that is how we are to speak and to live. With scripture surrounding us, permeating us, leading us in everything that we do. It reads there, let the reader understand. Who said this? Have you thought about that? Who is the reader he's talking about here? Well, if it's Jesus who said this, then he is talking to, the re- to readers who know the book of Daniel. Some of your translations don't mention Daniel in verse 14, do they? But if you turn over to the parallel passage of Matthew 24, verse 15, each of the major translations contain the Daniel reference. 
So it's appropriate there. Jesus tells those familiar with the book of Daniel the prophet to realize what he is saying now is rooted in the prophecies of Daniel. If this is Mark saying this, let the reader understand, it's to tell his readers, which would have been about 20 years after Jesus spoke these these words, to realize this is all anchored in Daniel's prophecy. Either way, it is pointing to the prophecy of Daniel to give us direction on what he's saying here. The abomination of desolation. Let's break this down. Abomination. It means detestable, blasphemous, something hated by God. In Leviticus, it was sexual immorality, especially the sin of homosexuality and bestiality. That was abomination. In Deuteronomy, dishonesty in business, using false weights and measures, was considered an abomination to God. In 1 Kings and in Jeremiah, idolatry of any sort, but in particular the gross idolatry of King Solomon, was an abomination. In 2 Kings, tragically, The sacrificial murder of children is said to be an abomination to God. And then in Proverbs 12, none of us get out. It says liars are an abomination to God. Abomination, that which is hated by God. And the word desolation. In Webster's, it's something destitute or deprived of of inhabitants. Something that is uninhabited. It's laid waste. It is a ruinous condition. It is destroyed. It can mean deserted of God. It can mean deprived of comfort. So you have abomination and desolation. Strong's Concordance mentions three words used for, for desolation. They're very similar. Eremao, eremosis, and eremos. And they all mean to lay waste. They bring something to desolation, to come to nothing. So what is Jesus talking about? When he says this in Luke, it is written, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation, its emptying, is near. Luke 21.20 In Luke, the abomination that brings desolation has something to do with armies surrounding Jerusalem. Earlier on this Wednesday, Jesus had scorched the Pharisees when he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. It is left to you empty. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These words of Jesus to his disciples had purpose. And they still have purpose. It is intentional that Jesus says the Pharisees' rebellion against him, the Messiah of God, has left the temple what? Desolate. It is leaving it empty. Empty of what? It's been left empty of the glory of God. It will soon be empty of people. It will be destroyed. You have made it empty of God and worship is essentially what Jesus declares. With the same intent, the Holy Spirit uses the word desolation in Luke to describe Jerusalem surrounded by armies. William Lane describes it as an abomination so detestable it causes the temple to be abandoned by the people of God. 
and provokes desolation. So do you get the direction this is going? The abomination of desolation The abomination of desolation is not just some weird name of a cosmic superpower villain. It means something. It means that when that, whatever Jesus is warning about here, a person or an event or both, causes the temple of God to be completely emptied and destroyed. So what or who could that be? That's a great question. The abomination of desolation. Most Bible scholars agree that Jesus is referring to Daniel's statement in Daniel chapter 9, chapter 11 and 12. Let me read these. 9.26 Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the weeks, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wings of abomination will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Then in chapter 11, verse 31. Forces from him will arise and desecrate the sanctuary fortress. And do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. And then in chapter 12. At that time, Michael shall stand up. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time. At that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. Now with that description given in Daniel. Has anyone or anything like that ever happened in the history of Israel. There are four prominent contestants. First is Antiochus IV Epiphanes, a second century B.C. king of Syria. Secondly, the abomination of Phani. Third, the Roman destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And then finally, the future final abomination of desolation yet to come. Four possibilities of what might be talked about there. Let's look at the first one. Antiochus IV. He invaded Jerusalem in December of 167 B.C. with a quarter of a million men. He entered there. 250,000 men. He placed an idol of the false god Zeus on the altar of burnt offerings in the temple. Then he sacrificed ceremonially an unclean animal. It was actually a sow, a hog, that they put on that altar and slaughtered there. He banned all Jewish sacrifice as a capital offense worthy of execution. He ended temple worship. He actually set up prostitution on the temple grounds. He fit much of what was described in Daniel. He was seen by many as a forerunner of the man of lawlessness mentioned in the New Testament letters. Secondly, A much lesser known event is sometimes called the abomination of zealots or the abomination of Fani. Eusebius was a church historian in the mid-4th century A.D. and he wrote a series of books called the Ecclesiastical History or History of the Church. 
In the third volume, Eusebius describes a revealed word from God that was given to worthy men to flee from Jerusalem and dwell in the city of Pella in the region of Perea. This was on the other side of the Jordan, on the east side. In response, apparently, many Christians fled Jerusalem to the other side of the Jordan. Shortly following their escape, Eusebius wrote, The justice of God at last overtook those remaining Jews and all Judea since they had committed such transgressions against Christ and His apostles. Divine justice completely blotted out that impious generation from among men. But, what was the sign that caused all these people to flee from Jerusalem at that time? Well, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian during the first century A.D., he documented the history of Jewish battles in his area, in his books entitled, The Jewish War. In his fifth book, he recorded this, and, and a fellow by the name of Lane records Jesus, Josephus' insights this way. He refers to an ancient prophecy concerning the desecration of the temple by Jewish hands and found its fulfillment in a series of villainous acts committed by the zealots in the temple from the period of A.D. 67, November, to the spring of A.D. 68. During this period, the zealots moved into and occupied the temple. They allowed persons who had committed crimes to roam about freely in the Holy of Holies. They perpetrated murder within the temple itself. These acts of sacrilege were climaxed in the winter of A.D. 67-68. Listen to this. By the farcical investiture of the clown Fani as a high priest. In other words, to rub salt into the wounds of the Orthodox Jews, the zealots took over the temple and hired a clown to act as a ludicrous high priest. The former high priest, Annas, in sorrow declared, It would have been far better for me to have died before I had seen the house of God laden with such abominations in its unapproachable and hallowed places crowded with the feet of murderers. It is quite plausible that Christians, seeing this appalling and disgusting display of blasphemy in the temple of God from 67 to 68 AD, believed this to be the abomination of desolation that Jesus had described. They responded by fleeing to the eastern hills, and whatever the reason was for their timely flight, it actually saved the lives of literally thousands of Christians who escaped Jerusalem only a year before the next possibility of the abomination of desolation. You see what I'm saying? Historically, it is written that Eusebius records thousands of Christians escaped, fled from Jerusalem only a year to two years before Rome enters. The third possibility, the Roman destruction of the temple and city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Of this event, Josephus cried, No other city ever endured such miseries, nor since the world began has there been a generation more prolific in crime. He gives the details. 97,000 Jews taken into captivity for slave trade. 97,000. 1.1 million men, women, and children killed by slaughter with the sword or gradual starvation under siege. As the Romans waited with vengeance and cruelty outside the walls of Jerusalem, 
Josephus describes what went on behind those walls in the dying city. I quote, Then did the famine widen its progress and devoured the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children dying of starvation. The lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged. The children and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with famine, and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. As for burying them, those that were sick themselves were not able to do it, and those that were hardy and well were deterred by the great multitude of the dead, and the uncertainty when they would die themselves, for many died as they were burying others, and many went to their own coffins before the final fatal hour. There was no lamentation made under these calamities. The famine confounded all natural passions. A deep silence and a kind of deadly night had seized upon the city. End quote. Josephus further explains what they finally were driven to eat to stave off starvation, including cannibalism. It is literally sickening. Do we have any experience? Do we have even a clear understanding in our minds of what the words abomination and desolation and tribulation really communicate? We don't. Not even close. But we may. And we need to keep that in mind too. The Rome's destruction of Jerusalem is specifically and the only fulfillment of Jesus' description of the abomination of desolation is questionable for these reasons. Jesus urges those in Judea to flee when they see the abomination of desolation standing where it not, not to be. The flight of Christians out of Jerusalem occurred approximately two years before the Roman general Titus entered the temple. This would have been too late for Christians to flee when Titus had already entered with the banner of Rome and destroyed the holy place. Also, many citizens fled into the city for refuge, rather than obeying Jesus' command to flee to the mountains where Rome began, when Rome began its assault. Titus' siege of Jerusalem had happened in July and September of AD 70, which was summer and not winter. Those are just a few of the, of the reasons why it's not clear that this was exactly what was being spoken of. But all of these three events of Jewish history were horrific and they fill much of what Daniel wrote. And they were increasingly terrifying. The Lord Jesus, remembers, compares the signs he mentioned as prerequisite events. Or, what does he call them? Birth pangs. Birth pangs are the beginnings of the process of delivering a baby. And they are the sign that gestation or carrying of that child is about to come to an end. In other words, the signs that Jesus gives are the beginning of the end. The fourth explanation. A future final ab- uh, abomination of desolation yet to come. Please turn over to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to read a little bit there to understand what Paul wrote. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind 
or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. The Thessalonians had a fear that they had missed this day. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all powers, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. One of the writers said, The abomination that causes desolation alludes to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, but is not exhausted by it. The abomination is a mystery, as we read in Second Thessalonians. It's a double referent, a historical medium that anticipates an ultimate fulfillment in the advent or the coming of the Antichrist and the final tribulation before the return of the Son of Man. We thus do not have a foolproof sign in the abomination that causes desolation. So whatever this abomination of desolation is, it seems to have been and will be events that progress in increasing magnitude of hardship and rebellion against Christ the King. But there is also a final event and an antichrist that surpasses anything witnessed before it. It will be the fullest sense of a spirit and being who is so antichrist, so anti-God, so full of abhorrence and sin of man's rebellion that it will eclipse any one prior. So we're talking about a continual growth. Yes, these examples, they fulfill much of what Daniel wrote. But there is coming another time when that, that will just continue to increase and ramp up prior to the return of Christ. Edwards wrote, when Christ returns, he will fulfill the many Old Testament prophecies about the end. But secondly, despite imminent signs, believers cannot calculate when, where, and how the end will come. And the scriptures we will study next week say that specifically. No one knows the time and the day. Who said that? Jesus said that. When it comes, no, no one will miss it. And until it comes, no one should be misled. I appreciate Ferguson's wise caution. He says, A profession of ignorance about the precise significance of some of these statements is nothing of which to be ashamed. 
Again, a profession of ignorance about the precise significance of some of these statements is nothing of which to be ashamed. Adding a dogmatic assurance to one's interpretation of a passage of Scripture is no guarantee that the interpretation is correct. Adding a dogmatic assurance to one's interpretation of a passage of Scripture is no guarantee that the interpretation is correct. So the louder I say something does not make it truer. We need to study. We need to understand. This is not absolutely clear. Jesus tells us there is mystery. Paul tells us of mystery. And we try to dig in and we try to understand. But why is it there? Because God's children will not miss the abomination of desolation. Remember it says, so when you see... You will not miss it. Then what are you to do? He says to urgently flee. Jesus describes three scenarios to amplify the desperation. He says in 14, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. If you are a resident of Judea, and you see or hear of the abomination of desolation in the temple, do not run to the city to find refuge behind its walls. This time fly to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house nor enter to take anything out of his house. The rooftop of a typical first century Jewish home was accessed by an outside stairway that went up to the the side of the house. It served as a living space for the family, like a patio or a deck. In the evening, it was a place to cool off and relax. If you are up on that roof and sense what Jesus is describing here, you must run for your life. Verse 16, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Workers in the field may have left their overcoat or their cloak back in a corner of the field as they worked up a sweat toiling in the wheat fields. Don't be a fool and take time to go back across the field to grab it. Get out of there, is what Jesus is saying. This also will be accompanied by hazardous hardships. There are hazardous hardships at times that turn blessings into danger. Blessings that will endanger. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. One of the greatest things we can do is announce that I'm having a child. One of the greatest losses is to now announce I've lost a child. It is a great blessing. But in this circumstance, it becomes a hardship. Luke writes in verse 21, the parallel passage, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. Woe, it says, how dreadful, both for the struggling mother who is seeking to escape and for the young innocent child. And there will be perilous weather. Verse 18, And pray that your flight may not be in winter. Although snow would be a rarity in Judea, Winter and spring bring heavy rains. These cause rivers and seasonal creeks to swell and become impassable. Food at this time would also be much harder to come by. So how serious is this? Verse 19. Suffering will be unrivaled. The severity. How bad is this? The severity. How bad? Verse 19. For in those days there will be, Matthew adds, great tribulation. Affliction, says the King James, such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time nor ever shall be. The Gospel of Luke goes on, For these days are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. And in verse 24 of Luke 21, 
and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That, that is almost a carbon copy of what happened in AD 70. Then the shortening of days. How close, how close a call this was. Verse 20, And unless the Lord had shortened or cut short those days, no flesh, no human being would be saved. None would survive. If this had gone on any longer, no one would have lived. No one. And then the sovereignty. How merciful. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. In the midst of the overwhelming tribulation, God stands by his own chosen children. He does not neglect. He does not leave them on their own. It is in mercy to his own sons and daughters that he brings this troubled time to an end. Exactly how or what God will do to shorten the days remains a mystery. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or here is the Messiah, Look, he is there. Do not believe it. For there will be increased deceptions. First in word. You see, the purpose now has changed. Edwards writes, For the earlier warnings in verse 5 and 6 referred to Messianic pretenders at the fall of Jerusalem as a sign that the end was not yet. Whereas here the appearance of false Christs and prophets is a sign that the end is at hand. Matthew 24 says, Therefore, if they say to you, Look, He is in the desert. Or go. He is in the inner room. Do not believe it. And do not go out. For as lightning comes from the east. And flashes to the west. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then it's not only a deception in word. But it is a deception in deed. If you watch these guys. They would have been absolutely convincing. Verse 22 says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive or to seduce, if possible, even the elect. The false Christs and prophets will be many and they will deceive many, but they will not deceive Jesus' own. His elect chosen sons and daughters will remain. John 10, verse 4 through 5 says, When he puts forth all his own, He goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Jesus goes on to say, A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of a stranger. Jesus commands, Do not believe the pretenders. Do not let them distract from fixing your eyes on Jesus. But Christ also assures us that his second coming will be witnessed by all. Lightning crossing the sky from one end to another is not a subtle phenomenon. Christ's coming will not be missed when His time arrives. And as I I preach this and I say this, I know many of you have heard these things. And and we hear them almost to where they just become dull and they don't sink in. And we say, yeah, you know, well, I've I've got this going on at work tomorrow. The children need this. And and those are things we have have to take care of, attend to. But Jesus spoke these, and he spoke these for the purpose of preparing us in some way of what is going to happen. Verse 23, there is a certainty of what Jesus is saying here. But take heed, be on guard, 
See, I have told you all things beforehand. Christ's direct command is to be alert and to watch out. When Jesus returns, He will fulfill every Old Testament prophecy regarding the end times. He also says that when they occur, His own will see them. Do not worry, brothers and sisters. It will be clear because Christ Jesus will make it clear to you who love Him. When He comes, you cannot miss it. Until He comes, it will not be seen with clarity. When He returns, the precision and the power of the fulfillment of each prophecy will be utterly astounding. The praise of His name will rise to even greater heights for how He demonstrates sovereignty and wisdom. Remember, He is our Father and He will not leave us. I've heard many uh, call-in questions. Uh, what will happen if I miss this? Or if I don't see it hum- coming? Or uh, Can that happen? Jesus says it will not happen to those who are His. He is not going to leave you ignorant, just like He didn't leave, leave you ignorant of the gospel. He spoke that to you. He opened your heart and your mind to come to Him and be saved. When these times come, we can rest assured that we will see it. But the other side of the coin is, He urges us, be alert and watch out. His people will do that. But they will do it with confidence. Not because they're afraid to miss it. But why? What does it signal? He is coming. That's why we look forward to it. Now it will be difficult. There will be, there will be bloodshed, sorrow, throughout the, wor- through the world that we have never imagined. But it will be a sign that Christ will return. The arrival of the Son of Man, verse 24 through 27. There will be failure in the heavens. Verse 24, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. The first phrase, but in those days. This actually is an Old Testament technical term meaning the last days. It is saying in the last days after that tribulation. After the difficulties Jesus has described. Not during, but later. And we don't know how much later. And that's the thing that confuses us oftentimes. But it will occur. There will be failures of the most stable things of life. And what would that be? Both in the heavens and on earth. The most stable things. What do we talk about? He's, he's as regular as the sun comes up in the morning. Well, that's going to change. And on earth there will be signs in the sun in the moon and in the stars. And on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring in Luke chapter 21. And here will be the response of men when this happens. Men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the power of the heavens will be shaken. Luke 21, 26. Some of this is figurative. Some of this will literally be seen as it's as seen here. And it's hard to, to discern from that. The, the, the words used by Isaiah, by many of the prophets, uh, spoke of in some of these same ways, and, and they were shown to be figurative representations of great calamity and difficulty. But we also know there's a literal sense here for, for who is God? He is the one who, who puts the stars in sky. He is the one who causes the sun to rise and the earth to turn. He is the one who puts everything in place. Nothing, literally, it's too hard for our Savior, for our God. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away 
with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. I remember John giving a message on that and, and just some of the, the physics that go with that and the possibility, the very real possibility of how quickly that could happen if God were to move in, in the tiniest of ways of his, in His sovereignty. <clears throat> Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Let me read that again and hear that. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? These things that are happening around us, they're to cause us to be holy in conduct and godliness. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2-3 says, Has in these last days... God has done this. He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. And what does He do here? Upholding all things by the word of His power. This is not simply a, a, a weightlifter lifting something up and holding it in place. He's not doing that. It is the sense He is upholding. He is holding it and carrying it to the destination that he has determined. God is actively upholding all things by the word of his power for the final consummation when he will be glorified in ways that are beyond our imagination. This is the God whom we know and serve. And then we see the son's arrival in verse 26. Then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Matthew 24 verse 30. And then the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That is the picture Psalms 104 gives us. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God. You are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. Who cover yourself with light as with a garment. Who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot who walks on the wings of the wind. That's our God. He makes the clouds his chariot and he walks on the wings of the wind. Isaiah says in chapter 19, The burden against Egypt, behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. Daniel 7 Verses 13 through 14. And this is a key to all that we've been looking at this morning. I was watching in the night visions. And behold one like the son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Which shall not pass away. And his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So Jesus speaks from Daniel chapter 7, 13 through 14. At this moment, he is saying something that is actually the occasion that Daniel sees of his ascension to glory alongside the Father, the Ancient of Days. There, as he enters with clouds as the Son of Man, he receives dominion and glory and eternal kingdoms. Perhaps, perhaps I'm, I suggest 
Mark 13, 24 through 27, is a picture not only of Christ's return as king in judgment, but also in display to all mankind that he reigns and ascends as God and king forever in the heavens. I think it does. I do not know that it does. But I believe that that's what we're seeing here. It, it works together with what Daniel saw and it works together as it's described by Jesus upon his return in the clouds. And then we have the son's assembly, the final scripture. And then he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, says Matthew. And it will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest, the uttermost parts of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. The angelos. The word is actually messenger. It can mean human. It can mean a, a heavenly messenger. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, there's a description of these heavenly messengers. But when he, God, again brings the firstborn into the world, his son, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. On into Hebrews 1, at the end of that chapter, it says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all, these, these fires, these spirits, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? These angels, their purpose is to minister to us who know him, who are saved. These messengers... And I believe it is the heavenly messengers, the angelos, have been given amazing capability. They have, but it's a bizarre description of collecting God's elect here. Some believe that angelos used here means a human messenger, which could be a human messenger preaching the gospel. But if it does indeed mean an actual heavenly angel, Calvin described the event in this way. For though the church be now tormented by the malice of men, or ever broken by the violence of the billows, and miserably torn in pieces, so as to have no stability in the world, yet we ought always to cherish confident hope, because it will not be by human means, but by heavenly power, which will be far superior to every obstacle, that the Lord will gather His church. It is a promise of redemption. Luke writes, Now when these things begin to happen, look up, look to the heavens, lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Will that be amazing? The dead in Christ. Those, those that are buried all over the place. Those that were down in the Titanic. Those who died during World War I. Those... Who, who loved Christ at every moment of catastrophe, those who we loved and laid to rest in cemeteries, those who were burned at the stake, their ashes tossed into the river because of their faith, all of the dead will rise and they will be joined together with their souls, with a glorified body. Then we who are alive, as we're looking at all this, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. What do we do with that? He tells us, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Encourage each other. This lays ahead for us. This wild things 
amazing things in the hands of God to bring us to His side. Alistair Begg shares an account from the book Against All Hope. And it was the memoirs of a man by the name of Armando Valadares who was held in a communist Cuban prison. In describing the prison and the guards as they came and took away Christian prisoners to the firing squads, he says that his faith, his interest in God was nominal until he saw these men going to their deaths. And they went to their deaths with shouts of Viva Cristo Rey! Viva Cristo Rey! And then he writes those cries of the executed patriots Long live Christ the King had awakened me to a new life. And they echoed through the 200 year old moats of the fortress. Those cries became such a potent and stirring symbol that by 1963 the men condemned to death were gagged before being carried down to be shot because the jailers feared their shouts. I want to close with 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Would you please turn in that with me? 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 12. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. And the love of every one of you all toward each other abounds toward each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction for the presence of the Lord and for the glory of His power when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. I love that passage. It starts with the faithfulness of God's people who are suffering, suffering terribly. And they will not give up. In fact, in the midst of it, it says their love and their patience, or their love and their faith, keep growing. They keep growing under those circumstances. So that, that these guys, Paul and these others, are boasting about them to the churches. That's what it resulted in. Can that result in, in the same way in us? It can. But we must keep our eyes, like Jesus says, do not be deceived. Do not be distracted. Hold fast. Watch out and hold fast. And these amazing things can be true with us. And Paul finishes, Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. What calling? To suffer for Him. And fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power. For what purpose? Verse 12, That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready? Be alert. Hold fast to the word of God and to the gospel. Be alert. Watch yourself. Hold fast. But do it with confidence. Looking forward to his return. And perhaps you will have the great pleasure of suffering for this God who we will be with, we will reign with forever. And perhaps not. Perhaps you will be taken on flowery beds of ease while others sought to win the price and sailed on bloody seas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Knowing, Father, Father God, of all the men I read this week and, and the difference of opinions, I readily confess before you and before my brethren that some of what I've said is, is may be led astray, may, may not be accurate. Forgive me for those things, Lord, and lead us purely down the road of your word so that we see you and know you. May these scriptures we looked at, though, bring us closer to Christ and prepare our hearts to glorify you in any circumstance. For you are worthy. Lord, may we live each moment from the moment we wake until we fall asleep desiring what you have written here, that we would bring glory to the Father and he will glorify himself in us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this great calling. In your name we pray and we trust and we hope. Amen.